All right. Um, it is from verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the peoples of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay the wood, but no fire, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. Then they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing or relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon him. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he re repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seers of seed. And then he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offerings and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water ran around the altar, filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of gushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now and look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising up from the sea. And he said, Go up to Ahab. Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rose and went, rode and went to Jezreel. And the Lord was on, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Thanks, Lindsay, for reading, and good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. Uh, my name is Jack, uh, if we haven't met. Well, a little girl and her father were crossing a bridge over a fast-running river. The father, being worried for his daughter, asked whether she would hold his hand. Please hold my hand. I don't want you to fall in the river. The little girl looked up and said, no, I don't want to hold your hand. I want you to hold my hand. Surprised, the father asked, why? What's the, what's the difference? Well, the little girl replied, there's a big difference. If I hold your hand and something happens to me, then I might let your hand go. But if you hold my hand, I know for sure that no matter what happens, you will never let my hand go. Well, that's a cute little story. Uh, it's a silly little story in one sense, and, and maybe it's because I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and I could totally imagine Rosie saying something like that, that it impacts me, but there's something deeply sweet and profound about it. The security of knowing that it's not me who's holding on, but someone else is holding on to me. Because that is a beautiful picture of trust. And we live uh, in a world that is searching for trust. One of the key questions that our culture and our society is asking is who do you trust and why do you trust? Who do you allow to take your hand and to guide you? I work with university students and this is a key question particularly for Gen Z, the generation that's in uni at the moment. Morning Consult, which is a global intelligence company, has a Gen Z worldview tracker and trust 
is one of their key findings. In fact, they say that trust in institutions is falling across the board, particularly for Gen Z. From governments and politicians to the justice system to news media to big corporations, it's really hard to trust. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it. On the largest scale, we live in the age of fake news, of politicians, of media personalities who can just lie. You know to be sceptical of anything you find on the internet in a way that generations before haven't. And with technology advancing, you'd never trust a recording or a Photoshop. It just takes a few seconds to put a filter on a video to completely change the way that it's perceived. Which means that Gen Z, and in fact all of us, are finding it harder than any generation before to trust. Now, let's be clear, this is not necessarily a bad thing. To be sceptical to be skeptical about something is actually a good thing. But I hope you can see that this raises massively important questions about God. Because how do you know that you can trust God? Who are you going to put your ultimate trust in? It's all very well for God to make himself known, for him to be true, but there's a deeper problem. God being true isn't really good enough. There needs to be another step in order to trust. Is God good? Is he for you? And how do you know that? And if you're going to take the step of faith and commit to him, if you're going to count the cost to follow him, if you're going to devote your whole life to him, to be the one who you ask to hold your hand as you cross the bridge, then you need to know that he is good. We need to know that we can trust him. And that is what we are going to be looking at as we jump into 1 Kings 18 this morning. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to delve into the text. So let's all pray together as we come to 1 Kings 18. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth, but more than that, that it tells us about Jesus. It tells us about how good Jesus is. It tells us all about what Jesus has done for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning as we look at this story in Elijah, that we will be able to see through this Old Testament story, through Elijah, through everything that happened there, and to be able to understand more clearly just what it is that Jesus has done for us. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let's jump into 1 Kings 18 and see whether we can make sense of it. Uh, we are looking at narrative. Um, have your Bibles open if you have them. If not, uh, I will have some things coming up on the screen. Uh, but we're looking at narrative, so let's remind ourselves of who the characters are. The first person uh, who we've been introduced to is Elijah. There's two things we need to know about Elijah. Firstly... His name literally means, my God is Yahweh. That tells us something about who he is. And secondly, Elijah is a prophet. That is, someone who speaks the word of God. We saw last Sunday why this was important. But we also got to know the antagonist in this story, the king Ahab, Elijah's opponent. And Ahab is the Israelite king, but... He's married a woman called Jezebel, who's from Tyre, not in Israel. And Jezebel has brought with her the pagan gods of Baal and Ashtaroth. And so for Ahab, Yahweh 
is not God. Baal and Ashtaroth are. And Baal and Ashtaroth are the male and female gods of fertility and rain, which is why God has sent his prophet to declare judgment through drought. But in this story this morning, we get a third character. And the third character is the people. And the people are set up in this story as being pretty pathetic. They're stuck and they don't know who to choose. They've got Yahweh and they have Baal. They don't know which one to go for, so they just kind of do both. They want to believe, but they don't know what to believe in. They don't know who to put their trust in. And you can see this in verse 21 with Elijah's scathing indictment of them. He's not impressed with this. Verse 21, he says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. In plain English, they looked shiftily around and refused to meet Elijah's eye. And so that's the backdrop as we jump into this story. There's been three years of drought, and finally this ultimate confrontation has arrived. God's prophet versus the prophets of Baal. God versus Baal. This has been building for years, and you can feel the tension and the hatred between Elijah and Ahab in their opening meeting. Verse 16, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Verse 18, Elijah basically says, I'm not the troubler, you're the troubler. You've abandoned Yahweh. And then Elijah says, let's finish this once and for all. It's the final showdown, winner takes all. And so they set up the challenge in verse 23. And here's how the showdown will look. Elijah says, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of the Lord, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. This is the ultimate confrontation. There's going to be a sacrifice, a burnt offering, but it is a burnt offering with a twist. God will provide the fire on the sacrifice that is good, that he approves of. Then we get this funny little line from the people again, our third character, and all the people answered, it is well spoken. In plain English, finally the people say, someone is going to clear this mess up for us once and for all. And so we get the first up, the attempt from Ahab and the prophets of Baal in 25 to 29. Let's see how they go. And so the prophets of Baal, verse 26, they took the Baal that was given them, the bull, sorry, that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answers, and they limped around the altar that they had made. You can see the futility of this. Answer us, they say, and there is silence. 
And then the narrator emphasises this silence with two emphatic negatives that punctuate the line, there was no voice, no one answered. They are left shouting into the abyss, limping, literally, around the altar that they had made. And this is the precise moment that Elijah invents sledging. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing or he is relieving himself, or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now, this is quite funny. Don't miss the humour here. For those wondering, that's definitely a toilet joke in there. Maybe he's not answering because he's on the toilet. But actually, there's a really important point in here because the humour demonstrates the Bible's attitude towards idols. What is happening here is ridiculous because Baal isn't real. He's made up. He's an invention. And Elijah's mocking simply brings this out. You know, it's a funny thing because people mock religion as being the same as believing in Father Christmas or the spaghetti monster or the fairies in the bottom of the garden. But the funny thing is the Bible actually agrees with that. If you're just worshipping something you invented, something that is not real, then yes, that's ridiculous. The Bible is very clear on this. The truth claim is important when we're thinking about religion. It's not actually good enough for it to be simply psychologically fulfilling for you. Not all religions are equal. It needs to be real. It needs to be true. And this is what Elijah's mocking reveals. Your truth is not automatically valid. But the impact of Elijah's mocking on the prophets of Baal caused them to hurl themselves further into a religious frenzy. And this bit is weird and it's crazy and should make you feel a little bit unsettled. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And then this time we get three no's, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one was paying attention. So then we get Elijah's turn. When we're looking at narrative, it's important to keep an eye out on the detail. Often the meaning is in the detail. And we get a little bit of detail here. In verse 30, we see that Elijah repairs the altar. There must have previously been an altar where faithful Israelites had sacrificed to Yahweh. So Elijah restores it. Verse 31, he does so with 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. Then he digs a trench, lays the wood on the altar, and puts the sacrifice of the bull onto the wood. So we have an altar, we have a sacrifice, we have the wood. It's going to be a burnt offering. And we know something about burnt offerings from another book in the Bible that comes before this episode. It's called Leviticus. And it's all about how this sacrificial system worked. In Leviticus 1.4... It says, he, any Israelite, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. 
He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, that might be a little bit confusing if you read that for the first time. So let's just unpack it a little bit. Let's just zoom out for a moment so we can understand exactly what is going on here. Leviticus is all about how the relationship between God and humans can be restored. The big problem is what the Bible calls sin. We've rejected God and we've lived our own way. So we're out of relationship with God. The question is, how do we come back? And it's not just that we're out of relationship. It's not like I just didn't talk to God for a day, but now I've decided I'm going to talk to him. No, God is the ruler of this world who's created a good and a wonderful place for us to live in, to be safe, to be called our home. Now, imagine for a moment that you're a kid and you walked into your parents' house, you walked into your room that they'd set up for you, you got all your valuable possessions in a bag, got all the gifts and presents you've ever had, then you lit a match, you torched it, then grabbed a baseball bat and begin to trash your room. You'd be making a pretty big statement then, right? Against your parents. But more than that, you wouldn't expect that you could just turn up the next day as if that hadn't happened. Because that's wild. No, there are consequences for what you do. You would expect a punishment. You'd have to live with the consequences of what you had done. You'd have to live with the lack of trust that that created between you and your parents. That's the punishment for the sin of wrecking your home. God created this world. He created this world to be a good and safe and wonderful home for us to be in. And as humans, sin is rejecting God, but also rejecting the world that he created for us. And so there must be a punishment. We can't just waltz back in and say, God, I'm back. Here I am. And that's what the Leviticus quote is all about. Because God, like a parent, like a loving father and mother, wants to have relationship with us. And so in the book of Leviticus, God, because he loves Israel, showed them how to come back to him. Despite everything that they had done, to deal with this punishment so that they could have restored relationship. And so in placing their hands on the offering... What it did was it symbolized the transferring of sin from the person onto the sacrifice. And so then the punishment fell on the sacrifice, not on the person. And the moment that that happened is that word atonement. That's what we call atonement. You literally become at one at one with God again. It's an incredibly beautiful idea. And it demonstrates the love and the mercy of God. That while we rejected him, he wants us back and provided a way to do it. I hope you can see that even here in the Old Testament, this is the gospel. We have the gospel on view here. And so that's what we're talking about here. Let's jump back into the story because we have one little vast bit of detail we need to have a look at. Elijah then orders four water jars to be poured out three times. That's 12 water jars. Now, what's he doing here? I think there's two reasons for this. 
Firstly, he does this to show that this isn't a trick. Everything is wet. Elijah hasn't secretly covered it with petrol and then flicked a match on when no one was watching. But secondly, they're in the middle of a drought. And they're in the wilderness on top of a mountain. Where does the water come from? Why do you have big jars of water? Well, I think it's their water supply. I reckon Elijah has just used up their entire water supply. Why? Because of the confidence that he has. In making this sacrifice, he knows that not only will relationship with God be restored, but the judgment of drought will be lifted and God, the true God, will bring rain and healing and restoration to the land. As they are freed from sin, so they will be saved for life. And so Elijah prays. And listen carefully to what he says, because this prayer gives us the purpose statement for this section. Verse 37. Just have to listen to this one. Verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord, and that you have turned their hearts back. Two big things to note there. Firstly, this is happening so that the people may know who God is, that they might know the truth about who to follow. This is a sign. God hasn't left the people of Israel in confusion. He comes to them and reveals himself to them. And he has done it time and time again. God wants to be known. And he has made himself known. And secondly, it's not just that God is God. Elijah wants people to know that it is God. But he also wants them to know that it is God who has turned their hearts back. The people in this story, as we've noticed, are pretty useless. They're indecisive. They're prone to wonder. They're weak-willed. They don't really ever stand up for anything. I said there were three main characters at the start, but really there's four. Because in this whole story, God is the fourth character. It is God who is the active agent amidst all of this. It is God who reaches out. It is God who moves. It is God who will care for his chosen people and deliver them. God shows the initiative in saving his rebellious people. It is God who has been holding their hands the entire time, even when they have let go. And so in answer to Elijah's prayer, God sends fire from heaven and it consumes the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust and all the water that was in the trench. God shows himself, he reveals himself in the fire. He shows that he is the true God and that Baal is not. But more than that, we see that atonement has been made. The sacrifice has been accepted. The punishment for the sins of the people in worshipping Baal and Ashtaroth has fallen on the sacrifice, not on the people. 
And what is the response of the people to this act of grace that they had done nothing to deserve, the only response that is open to them? And the people fell on their face and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Because what else can you do when the creator and sustainer of the universe has just revealed himself to you as your saviour? It is complete and utter vindication. But then we have two things to finish this story off. The postscript of this story. Firstly, in verse 40, we see judgment comes on the prophets of Baal and their execution. Now, you might think that this is a little bit harsh, but remember what is at stake here. This is not just anyone who the prophets of Baal have rejected. It is the true and living God. And they haven't just rejected God, they have actively worshipped idols. They have become the false idols' prophets and tried to turn Israel against God. And they haven't repented for what they have done. This is a picture of God's justice, and it is deserved. But on the other side of God's judgment is a picture of God's grace and mercy, 41 to 46. Six times a guy is sent out to look for rain, and then on the seventh time, rain comes. Because God has not just sent fire, and accepting the sacrifice, they are not just saved from their sin, but they are saved for life. God has sent the rain to break the drought and to heal the land. The heavens open and the rain comes down. Life returns to the land. The physical revival of the land mirrors the spiritual revival that has just happened. And so we have in 1 Kings 18 a picture of a God who makes himself known so that he can save his people, forgive their sin, and lead them into life. It is a picture of a good God who can be trusted, a God who has never let go of his people. And so the question that we then have to move to is then what does this mean for us? How do we apply this Old Testament passage to the 21st century? And we saw last week that there are two ways of doing it. You can go Old Testament to us, and that way you end up in a whole lot of problems. The correct way, the way that we need to understand the Old Testament, is to stand the Old Testament in Jesus and then to us. Why do we do it like this? We do it like this because the Bible itself tells us to read it this way. In fact, at the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus stands in front of his disciples and he says this in Luke 24, 44 and 45. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So that's how we have to understand it. We have to understand how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And so there are two main takeaways for us as we do this work. Number one, the truth matters. God has made himself known ultimately in Jesus. You see, God in the Old Testament is a God who reveals himself so that he can be known again and again. But all of this is pointing forward to when he will reveal himself fully in Jesus. 
Because not only will God make himself known through his actions, like in this story, but in Jesus, God will physically enter into this world. He will take on our humanity and live as one of us. And he will do so for the exact reason that we can know him. We do not have to think our way to God. We don't have to guess what he might be like and hope that he what he is like. He comes and he lives amongst us so that we can know him, so that we can know his heart, so that we can know the truth. If you look at the start of Mark's gospel, it tells us its main point. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's gospel begins with Mark putting his cards on the table. Jesus is the Son of God, and he wants you to know this. That's why he's writing the gospel. And this then is affirmed when we move to the climax of Mark's gospel. As Jesus dies, his arms outstretched on the cross, and the Roman centurion, for the first time in Mark's gospel, says, truly this man was the Son of God. Even a pagan Roman centurion, God has made himself known through Jesus. But we need to go one step further, because this is not just a random sign. This sign is also a shadow of what is to come. God shows his goodness in sending Jesus to be the sacrifice. And 1 Kings 18 is pointing us towards this. Elijah's prayer gives us the purpose statement. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And we see how this has occurred in the sacrifice. God accepted the sacrifice given by Elijah on the people's behalf. But as we move forward to Jesus, we realize that something greater is going on. Because not only has God provided a way for a sinful people to have relationship with him, in Jesus we see that God has gone unimaginably further. He has sent his son to be the sacrifice. The cross is the ultimate atonement sacrifice itself. 1 John 1, 2, 2. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think one of the realities is that when we read a story like this, we want to be like Elijah. We want to be the prophet who stands for the truth and calls out hypocrisy and justice and evil. But the reality is that we are far more like the people. Those poor, pathetic Israelites, stuck in the middle, just trying to figure it all out. But God is the active agent. He is the one who makes the move. When we are stuck, he sent his son Jesus into this world. Not just to be known and to stand alongside us, but to be the sacrifice that makes us right with God. Jesus died so that we can have life. Jesus took our punishment so there is nothing standing before us and God. And all that is required is for us to fall on our knees like the Israelites and worship him. Nothing more. To just accept the gift that has been offered and to put our trust in the one who deserves it. Let me pray as we finish. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has made you known to us. We thank you that he is the sacrifice for our sins.
Thank you that you are a good God that can not just be known but can be trusted because you have loved us, you have cared for us, you have held our hands. And as we think about this year, as we consider who we are going to put our trust in, help us in 2022 to get that vision of who your son Jesus is, to put our faith and our trust in you, the only one who is worthy, the only one who is worthy of that trust. And we pray that in your son's name. Amen.